Hey everyone, it's Preston. Um, Carmine is uh, sick or something, and so instead I have with me the Order of the Green Hand. Um, say hello. What's up, everyone? I'm Mary Ellen. This is... I'm Dave. And uh, you guys have your own channel as well. Yes. Um, and today we're going to discuss uh, Fire and Blood some more, since uh, it came out and there's just a, a treasure trove of information in it. Um... Now, uh, you guys have a copy of uh, of Fire and Blood. Uh, too many to count, I think. Uh, <laughs> you you bought more than one. Yes, we have two books, and then the Audible version and a digital version. Yeah, well, we went to the event that was um, took place in Jersey City, and uh, when you bought your ticket, when you walk in, you get a free signed copy of the book. Okay. So that was really cool. So we got two copies that way, and then plus, obviously, you know, the PDFs, the iBooks, and everything like that. But uh, how, how how many people were at this event? I think they said about fifteen hundred. So so George sat and he he signed fifteen hundred books. Yeah. Yes. He's he is like way into like he is a little too much into book signings. Like every <laughs> every event he goes to. He'll have like three book signing sessions, and they just kind of go on and on and on and on. Um, he's he's essentially like flooded the market with his signature. It's it's incredibly easy to get his signature on things. Um, I mean, maybe if you have like a first edition Game of Thrones book with his signature, it's worth some money. But he's uh he just signed. He spends so much time signing, not that much time writing, I guess. <laughs> yes. And, well, and every year he runs this thing at the Gene Katu Cinema where he sells like a plethora of his books all signed. He likes to do it for the holidays, I think. It's like a holiday thing, but you but now he started doing it. You can do it year round. I saw it like a couple of months ago, too. So, yeah, he loves to um, he loves signing books and and uh, he actually had to um, like limit the number of books that people could get because they were reselling them on eBay for a profit and uh so now you can only get like one or two i believe well that's the thing is like considering considering how many i, I i'm not sure why anyone would would need to buy one on ebay they're, <laughs> they're all over exactly right he he sells them already signed so yeah you can just do that and not pay the increased price so what else what else happened at this event so um, the event um, took place at the Landmark Lowe's Theater in Jersey City, and he was interviewed by John Hodgman, who is a good friend of his and has done interviews with him in the past. Um, what, beforehand, you had to submit questions via email that um, would be chosen and selected as like the part two that took place. So the first half was just him in a conversation with John Hodgman. And then the second kind of part of the um, discussion involved questions from the audience. Initially, they told us to bring them and submit them upon, you know, entering the theater, but they changed it like last minute. So we submitted 10 questions. Um, Five were like fire and blood related, and then five were just like I don't know. He'll probably never answer this, but I'll I'll submit them anyway and see what happens. And um, he so five questions were picked at the. I guess you could say he answered five questions, and then they just kind of read the person's public service announcement about 
not yelling at George. <laughs> yeah, that whole like hashtag be nice to George movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so like the first two questions were related to his upbringing. He's he's such a he's such a fragile fragile <laughs> delicate flower. That's what Paris will say. Uh. He's uh he's got an edge. Like I mean, that's the thing is like he you know, he's we've we've all read his stuff. Like he definitely has an edge. He has a dark yeah. side. Like he's not the you know, he's not this incredibly sensitive um, you know, poor little man. Like, you know, he's he's late. No, you know, I think he's a perfectionist. He is. I you know, I think definitely. It wouldn't it wouldn't take this long um if he weren't a perfectionist. And he puts this like undue amount of pressure on himself and like when he was talking about the next book and he goes and then, you know, my I'm so scared that I'm gonna release it and no one's gonna like, like it. Like the like the last two like, books? Wow. What, what what is he what is he? I, mean, I know, I know, and I actually like those. No, two I, books I a lot. love them. I love A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, but um, I would say most people, most regular people, don't. Everybody's been waiting for the yeah. sequel to Storm of Swords, and um, you know, those books were not it. You know, it's uh, right. It's it's interesting. <laughs> I think A Feast for Crows threw a lot of people off because it was like all these new characters and. People were like, whoa, where's Jon Snow and Danny? And then, like, that put kind of a bad taste in their mouth. And then, even though A Dance with Dragons brought all those people back, they still kind of remembered that A Feast for Crows was just like Cersei's delusional thoughts and, you know, Aaron. Yeah. I'm, running around naked in the ocean. But I mean, a, a good friend, of, a good friend of mine is, a, is kind of a medium fan of, of Ice and Fire. And he told me he thought A Feast for Crows was a. a, a a book with a bunch of characters you don't care about doing exciting things and a dance with dragons was a bunch of characters you do care about doing nothing yeah yes i could see where someone would get that impression absolutely i mean because you know you have i actually thought they were like the best though well yes you me preston like we're scouring it for details and we appreciate like just the writing but of a casual reader it could it could they could lose engagement i could see that perspective Definitely in a feast for crows. Yeah, I mean you, you have this you have this exciting story of Brienne going and having action, having an adventure, but no one cares about Brienne. You no. know, and and you know you have this like long, very funny psychological um, uh, degrade for Cersei, but you don't, you know, people don't don't really care that much about Cersei compared to say John or Danny, you mm -hmm. know. Um, or all of these Ironborn, you know, the King's Moot, which is one of my all-time favorite chapters, probably top three, you know, at Aeron, but it's it's but it's a bunch of Greyjoys that we've never heard of. It's not even Theon, you know. So mm -hmm. it's uh, it, it was it was probably rough for a lot of people. And then when they get to a Dance with Dragons, it's like Dan and uh, Danny and John are just sitting around dealing with bureaucratic troubles of ruling, mm -hmm. you know. So it's uh. It's tough for them. Yeah, it was like almost more of the same, even yeah. though it wasn't. It felt somewhat more of the same for the Danny and John storyline. Yeah. So, so what was this question? What was this question that? Uh, so, was... like I said, two of them were related to his upbringing in Bayonne, which we got a chance to go down to the projects where George lived. 
Oh, really? We got there early, and that was so cool. Um, so we saw the shipyard where his dad worked. We saw the um, the, the sound. I don't know. Like, uh, the Brady Dock that used to be his family's that he yeah. talks about all the time. Um, it was literally across the street from the building that he grew up in. So yeah. every day he would walk out the building to go to work, or not to go to work, to go to school, and he would have to walk directly past the sign that had his family's name on it, but it wasn't his family's anymore. Yeah, he talks a lot about how he always felt like he was of good blood, even though, like... Yes, <laughs> right. he feels like disinherited royalty. Right, like how, like like House Derry or something. Yeah, and, like, he, and he answered, and he um, kind of related it to Danny. Oh, we, oh, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah. About how she was like, everything was taken from her. And he said that he was going to try to take it back with fire and blood. <laughs> what's what's funny? What's funny about that is, um, it's funny that he he does compare himself with Danny. But I've heard him in interviews talk about Viserys, and um, I think I think George R. R. Martin really wanted Viserys to be a villain. But I think he's really surprised how many people sympathize and pity Viserys, um, especially after the the incredible performance of um um the uh the actor harry lloyd yeah after i mean his pers- his performance of him made made him even more sympathetic i would say book viserys is not as sympathetic as harry lloyd makes viserys but it's mm-hmm. funny how he when he describes viserys he'll actually use the word you know entitled and you're like you're like the beggar king like is entitled like i i guess but if 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 Danny and by extension Viserys is you know him, um, he's calling himself like he maybe he you know he's actually like hitting down himself, calling himself a little entitled, you know, thinking that he. But um, I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of funny. But of course, you know his his upbringing in that area made him um, incredibly uh, focused on. Um, I would say. Uh, the will of the people and uh, that kind of um, mindset. Um, it, uh, he's definitely he's definitely uh, more of a uh, left-leaning socialist type, George R. Martin, and um, his his uh, working-class upbringing uh, definitely affected that. I think that I think that that's true, and I, I think that part of what George like he does speak of the upbringing that he had and the life that his family led before the Great Depression hit. He speaks of the two and the discrepancy between the two begrudgingly, almost like a little bit disappointed, a little bit frustrated by the fact that he goes, you know, he goes, I came from greatness, mm. and now here I am. There's the house I, my mom grew up in, and now I live in an apartment. I can't even have a dog. You know, mm. like, those are frustrations on his part that he felt probably as a kid and still to this day resonate with him quite a bit. Um, I also think that it probably fueled his imaginative side. Cause it did, because they never left their apartment. Because they had nothing to do, and he just sat there looking at, what, what did he call it, like the mystical lands of Staten Island, which yeah. were across the way. He's like, a place that I've never gone. He's yeah. like, but I could see it every single day, and like with all these lights and all this stuff going on there, and I always wondered what wondrous things were taking place on the other side of the sound that I couldn't ever visit. And yeah. I feel like it, it like helped fuel his imaginative 
living slightly in almost like a fantasy world style of youth. Well, he was definitely a shut-in who read a lot of books and comic books, um, Mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah, so he obviously took questions about the Bayonne thing and answered along the lines of what we just discussed. He was asked about food um, and, like, what kind of food would be served in Westeros for Thanksgiving. Um, And he said there's no turkeys there. Right. Are there no turkeys? Well, it's funny because I'm trying to think about... Because he he, he definitely has things that are anachronistic. So if it's based off of medieval Europe, you know, obviously uh, turkeys are, are from the New World. And so you shouldn't have turkeys in Westeros, right? Right. But I'm trying to remember if there was if there's potatoes. Um, there are. And that's a and there's actually an author's annotation about the fact that that is not um that doesn't line up. Yeah. With yeah. And um well I I'm doing my 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 search. I couldn't find any potatoes and but I just I just looked up in the search of ice and fire Game of Thrones brand 5. I spied a turkey, Theon said, annoyed by the question. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So there's one turkey. Yes. Sorry about that. Oh my gosh, I spied a turkey. Yeah. That's hilarious. So I think this is when uh is this when they get attacked in the in the forest or something? Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> So in any event, uh, there was one turkey. Um, and then uh, he, there was a question about Stanley, of course. Huh, yeah. He was, he was a big he was big into Marvel Comics. Yes. Uh, he wrote this like tribute to him on his blog and it like made me cry. He should be he should write obituaries. <laughs> like she I was, I was bawling. Crying. And I don't care about Stanley. I mean, I care about, you know, he was great. I've seen Marvel movies. It's great. But, like, I don't have any, like, emotional attachment. And I was, like, sobbing. Um, but so we went on about that for a little bit. And then he answered our question, which was really the only A Song of Ice and Fire question he, they picked and answered, which was, who's your favorite Targaryen king? Huh. Okay. And who was So who he? do you think he said? Um, I imagine he said, he said, um, he said Aegon the Unlikely. Egg. No? Give me another guess. We'll give you three guesses. Wrong. <laughs> huh, he didn't like Egg. Um, was it Aegon the first, the conqueror? No, that's who I thought he was going to say. Give me one more. Uh, well, then, I mean, the final would be Danny. Wrong. But, <laughs> man. Sorry. No, he shocked me, too. He really did. Uh, his answer was Jaharis. Huh. Okay. <laughs> We think it's partially because if you look at Fire and Blood, a lot of what was there about everyone else already existed, whereas he had almost nothing about Jaharis, so he had just spent the better part of the last year basically creating Jaharis' story. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's funny going through um, Fire and Blood, and, and you can tell what was, like, just by writing style, you can you can tell what was written early and what was written recently. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's funny in, in that respect, because like the older stuff is actually drier and his newer stuff is, is more, um, is uh, more, I'm trying to use the word, word, word floral or something, a little more, a little better mm-hmm. paced, which, mm-hmm. which, which is interesting. It means 
because he kids because he likes to say that he's losing his touch that he's that he's somehow getting older but it's like i find personally that his newer writing is is better than his older writing but we both 100 percent agree there's parts of a dance with dragons and a feast for crows that almost feel like it has like a poetic prose to it yeah like the way the words are and like the way that it just it, it almost feels like a really long poem like the, yeah. in certain passages, like when Euron speaks, especially like that's a there's that's a good example when he's talking about how from a shy to ib when men see my sails they pray. Like I mean, he is they're loaded with lines like that in the later books. It's funny because it's also being a guy who overanalyzes the text and goes line by line. Um, you can't do it as much with a Game of Thrones and a Feast for Crow. I mean, a Game of Thrones and a Clash of Kings. As in, like, there's just he he just wrote stuff um, on those two books that don't don't necessarily come back, and then you kind of say with well with a feast for crows and a dance with dragons, there's a lot of detail, and those details come back, and you can tell he's going slow. the 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 book that doesn't make any sense to me is actually a storm of swords because it is detailed and well paced, and everybody loves it, and he wrote it incredibly quickly. And I don't know how, like, I don't know how that book um, came out. Like, I, I can read a Game of Thrones. Well, Game of Thrones took many, many years to write because um, he was thinking about that one a long time. But A Clash of Kings, you know, you can read that book and you can understand, you know, why it, it came out so fast. Like, it's it's um, it has some filler. Uh, it's got it's got some, you know, some good battle descriptions for the for the Battle of the Blackwater. Um but for the most part, like it's it's not a poetic book like like a feast for crows is, you know, um, and it's not detailed. It's not like when when you know some knight is doing something in the background. Uh, well, they're, they usually don't describe people doing things in the background, unlike a feast for crows and dance with dragons, where there's something going on in the background and you're like, what the hell? That's mm -hmm. crazy, and, yeah. then it come, and then it comes back, you know. In the early books, you just get Sansa. Um, observing like what they're wearing or something, but that's about it. There's so much. I learned more about Westerosi fashion from Sansa than <laughs> the show. Like uh, you're like every person's wearing this. You're, like you know every single piece of every person's clothing from Sansa, and that's like all she does. But yeah, there's nothing of substance for that as much as there is in the later books. That I actually find Sansa. Um, and the Sansa story, the most fascinating because, uh, it was an added story. Like when you look at his original outline, Sansa's not really a character. Um, and she's added in and as essentially the anti-Aria, um, Aria, Aria is this gender bending female and, 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 and who has no place in, in sexist Westeros while Sansa is set up as the character who um you know navigates uh sexist westeros using her female agency and all of that i mean and it's it's even bluntly put in there with their direwolf names like sansa's is named the lady and and Arya's is named after a, a feminist queen you know and and mm -hmm. and it, it's funny because sansa's just kind of created as this anti-aria and then but now you're like you know, years and years, 20 years after this this outline, 
you know, he's he's created this new story that he didn't plan from from the beginning. Like, you know, whatever's going on in his head, he kind of knows where the brand story is going. He probably yeah. knew the brand story from day one, but he didn't know what what the Sansa story was about. And so it's it's kind of interesting to, to see where Sansa goes. But uh, anyway, that's just yeah, a little pe- tangent. People often reference that outline that you mentioned. Yeah. As indicating that, like, Sansa will die or whatever but like you said I I guess and I didn't know this she wasn't even conceptually a character right so to say that I guess you can't make that conclusion from that yeah I mean I wonder about that outline a lot um because there 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 are certain things about that outline that that are so different now um that it's hard to that it's hard to imagine you know like one thing I like to I like to point out to people is that okay for the past twenty years well not quite twenty years but for the past eighteen years George R Martin George R Martin has been thinking about the Ironborn Dornish and Cersei stories like that's what he's been writing like that's what he's been <laughs> right. advancing right like the Danny plot and the John plot hardly advance at all and when you look at his original outline Danny was supposed to leave. There was supposed to be a five-year gap, and Danny was supposed to leave Marine, like in Danny Three, you know. And instead, yeah, you know, and and the, the same, like, but there was no five-year gap, so he had to create all of this filler for John and Danny and Tyrion, this travel log and all of this. And the fill, the you know, as filler goes, it's fine, but um, but it's funny that that, you know he still had to create filler. He was ready to advance their stories, but instead he, he spent two books filling up this new material and, and the plot that's driving the plot that's moving is, is the Dornish, the Ironborn, Cersei. And I would say, you know, Theon and Asha as well. Cause well, Theon and Asha are the best parts of a dance with dragons. So you know. I love Asha. <laughs> you know, so she is so cool. Um, I guess I had never really thought about it like that, and that makes a lot of sense because he chose, he no, not even chose, he kind of was forced to do some of this just filler, kind of keeping them stagnated material for the main characters of like a Danny and John. That's how important this stuff that we're getting with these new introduction of characters, this new round of characters is to the story. Yeah, I mean... It's, I had never really thought about it like that, and that makes a lot of sense. It's funny because it's like it's like everybody keeps thinking it's going to be like the show, or that it's going to be a sandwich. That like the important stuff is at the beginning and and the end, and this whole stuff going on with Dorne and 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 John Con and and the Ironborn, they're just all just going to die, and it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. It's just Danny's just going to kill them all, or they're going to kill each other, and then it's just going to get back to Danny, John, and Bran, and you know, and it'll be, but it's like. George R. R. Martin spent 18 years and counting on this filler stuff. And he's just mm-hmm. going to throw it out. I just couldn't. I imagine. 100% agree with you. Like, is... Why would he bother doing that? No, it, he wouldn't. Why, why, why is he so, why has he spent the past 18 years like writing this, this, these, these plots that were just cut from the show? Like, oh, you, you cut 18 years of work. Okay. I, you know, that's a very good point. Yeah, like, was there even anything from A Feast for Crows except for the King's Moot? 
And that was only like added in because they decided to add in that like and it was season like, six, yeah, like making Euron, making Euron the villain, right? They had the king's yeah. boot. I mean, they had Jamie go back for River Run, but it was but it was irrelevant. Um, they had the Cersei and the and the high the high like the Cersei High Sparrow story was was maintained. Yeah. I also I thought they actually did a pretty good job of showing that particular plot line and like how creepy the faith really is yeah it, the guy who the guy who played him did a good job oh he was tremendous yeah um uh uh price jo- jonathan price is that his name yes i believe so he's famous yeah. from the uh, star of a movie called brazil is where a lot of people know him from but um i just know him as one of the bad guys from uh pierce brosnan um Oh right! Tomorrow never dies. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, he was like the media, the media mogul, mogul that was trying to start wars for ratings or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, no, he was great, and he—I mean—he played it very different from the book. But I would say that it was an improvement because the High Sparrow in the book—you don't really understand why anyone would follow such a, a mean, rigid, um, sure of a man. But Jonathan Price, you kind of get like, oh, he's very charismatic. You know, I get it. You know, like his 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 spiel is seductive. You know, it's all bullshit, but it's seductive. Um, and it it gets into George. This gets back into George's fan like life, and and he grew up Catholic, and and he mm-hmm. he, he he eventually rejected his Catholicism, and and um, has a, has a lot of criticism of it. Yes, which is what the Faith of the Seven is. You know. Yes. They're like a very, very, <clears throat> like kind of a little bit fantasy-inspired, mythology-inspired version of the medieval Catholic Church. That's kind of how I see them. Yeah, like with the faith militant orders and the, you know, George never understood, you know, the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, Father, you know, Son, and Holy Ghost. He goes, so they're all the same thing. Why are you saying there's three? Or, you know, so then right. he like played on that and made it seven. Seven and one, right. Yeah, the same, um, the same situation. And when he was asked about, like, the fe- a Feast for Crows, and I know we're totally off topic, and we'll get back to Aegon in a second. <laughs> just one thing that he said that was, like, I thought really interesting, because the person asked him, like, what are you most excited about in A Feast for Crows? It was, like, about to come out, and he's like, I'm excited about all the storylines, and I'll let the critics and fans decide which they like best. But he said, they all play a role in the story. I view this as a very large mosaic that I'm weaving here. It's like the story of World War II, and when you're writing the story of World War II, you're writing it from many sides. It's not just a story about FDR or Hitler, it's a story about the sergeant leading the charge on D-Day. It's the story of the guy at Pearl Harbor, etc., etc. It's the whole world at war. And I've created a whole world here and a cast of characters who are showing many different aspects about what's going on in the world. Mm. So that kind of like speaks to what you said about the importance of these storylines that he held on to that he didn't just create out of nowhere like they he wasn't just like i don't know what i'm going to do with danny and john let me create a you know a yeah, Doran plot an ironborn plot and it's like these guys are players that are necessary to take the story the rest of the way through yeah right so. and i i think a lot of people are, are quick to say you know the, the, the simplistic the simplistic plot would be okay i created Dorn and um Quentin is just going to die and and have no impact on the story at all. And then <laughs> and then um, you know Ariana, Ariane, however you want to pronounce it, um, <laughs> yeah, 
she is going to just join John Connington. And then John Connington is going to fight Danny in, in a second dance with the dragons. But then Danny's going to defeat him and we, we can move on. And it's like, well, okay, why even have that step? Because, you know... Just, exactly. It's unnecessary. It was, I mean, in the, the show just, you know, completely eliminated it and it was fine. Uh, I mean, I, not to say the show is fine, but the plot moved forward <laughs> nonetheless. Like Danny, yeah. Danny just came in and started fighting the Lannisters, and it's like, okay, well, there you go. Yep. It's like what? Like, it's rough. I would like to know what Cersei's going to do next season. I don't understand how she survived this sit, season. Just sit down there. I mean, who's she going to fight with? Who's she going to whatever? I don't know. The Golden Company's coming. It's all. Yeah, probably. John I keep Con. hoping that like they'll. Throw a, like a curveball, and like Aegon will show up with the Golden Company, and it'll give Cersei something to do down there. I mean, that must be something. It must. Be. I, I like, don't know. So like, why bring the Golden Company unless you're going to do something? Don't give them. them too much credit. It's only six episodes, so you're you're gonna have a couple episodes for Winterfell falling, and then people will just move south, and then there'll be some sort of final battle and around That's around true. the God's Eye or something. Yep. You know, so so we shall see. We shall see. But speaking of the God's Eye and Aegon the Conqueror, um, he actually, one of the main guys that he took down first was Heron the Black, who built his castle on the shore of the God's Eye. So um, in talking about and thinking about Aegon the Conqueror, did you get a chance to watch that video that George posted from um, through the Random House Publishing? I did. I did. Um do you want to tell them like a little bit about what he said in there and then tell us what you think? Sure. George says that there was a lot of speculation that um, Aegon invaded because of the problems that people were experiencing currently in the show, which is, of course, you know, the, the White Walkers. And so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot to unpack there because it's like, OK, what because we know from the book that Aegon essentially invaded um, to deal with Heron the Black, um, or at least that was his primary target, the first person he really attacked. Um, and I and before that, he was dealing with Baratheons and um, House Durandon, who were getting attacked by the Ironborn. So, if he was invited or he saw the opportunity or whatever, it was all because of Heron the Black's rise. Um, Heron the uh, Heron Hall was only a was was you know just getting complete and so i i can't see it as a coincidence you know that mm -hmm. this castle that takes 40 years to complete the minute it's complete aegon decides to invade with his dragons like uh, it's uh, you know you so the the question is like how does it all relate like how is hair in the black related to the others um and it's hard to say you know uh his brother was lord commander um at the wall and then there's the question of like the green men on the isle of faces and if heron hall had something to do with them um and and the sort of the big final secret of the story um mm -hmm. it's hard to say but it does it does seem like something something like that is going on um i mean all of these pieces i are, are there i just don't know how to put the pieces together like something to do with dragons and others and the isle of faces and hair in the black, and prophecy, three heads of the dragon, you know, um, those are the pieces. How they fit together, I don't know. 
Well, this is kind of like the way that we saw it. I don't know. You're you've probably obviously read the World of Ice and Fire mm. at least as many times as we have, and what we noticed was when you're leading up to Aegon's conquest, the case on the ground was that everyone was just constantly warring with everyone and killing everybody. Mm-hmm. I was like, there was, I believe the line in the World of Ice and Fire was that at any given moment, two or three of the seven kingdoms were at war with each other. Mm-hmm. And then we looked at that, and like that's obviously going to be non-conducive. I was like, if, it, if you... Westeros was never united and everyone still hated each other. What are the odds that you can get these people to fight with each other side by side if a real enemy like the others or something came back? Hmm. And then we found this one random line from Septon Barth. Septon Barth uh, spoke of a prophecy from ancient Valyria that said that the doom of man was going to come from the lands beyond the Narrow Sea. So if like Maybe if Aegon was aware that the doom of man was coming from the lands beyond the Narrow Sea, and he looked at what Westeros was and looked at it and said, there's no way they would ever survive if that's... Like, the if the doom of man actually came, these seven, what do they call them, the quarrelsome kingdoms, mm-hmm. could never fight side by side and defeat anything because they'd be just as likely to start killing each other as they would to do anything else. I was like, maybe if you spin it that way you could sort of, more so than I think like the three heads of the dragon prophecy. And I was like, I think that uniting them, I think attacking Heron the Black was more of a political move. I was like, because he was an astute politician. Right. And that guy was, for lack of a better word, the biggest piece of shit in all of Westeros. So if you're going to make an example out of somebody and show people what it means to fight Balerion the Black Dread... I was like, you might as well take the worst piece of shit in the world out of the equation when you do it. I was like, it's like if you had to pick someone to make an example of, that would be the guy. Sure, but if you are going to, you know, if you're worried about uniting uh, the kingdom, and this, this this actually gets into my, my the lack of logic of, of, of season six a little bit, is that, you know, Jon Snow feels he needs to attack Ramsey in order to unite the North in order to fight the White Walkers, um, which is like, wait, so you want to you want everyone to die and get killed off, and then they'll be unified, and then they can fight the White Walkers? Like, I mean, say John just like left, wouldn't Ramsey have a united army that then had to fight the White Walkers? I mean, like, like none of it really makes sense. So, like. So I understand the argument that like okay, Aegon needs to unite the seven kingdoms so that the seven kingdoms can can fight the white can fight the others. But Heron the Black would have united the seven kingdoms too. He was growing in power. Heron Hall was going to be unstoppable. Um, you know that could have that could have easily been the uh, the uniting force. Um, well, that's a little scary though. Yeah, would you really want Heron the Black in, um, <clears throat> in his line in charge of saving the world, though? He he was pretty terrible to all yep. everybody. Um, and, you know, what, what George specifically said was that there's a lot of speculation that in some sense he saw what was coming 300 years later and wanted to unify the Seven Kingdoms to be better prepared for the threat that he eventually saw coming from the North, the threat that we're dealing with in A Song of Ice and Fire. So the way that I see that is 
you kind of hear this common thing, common theme throughout the story where he's, where characters and say to each other or to themselves, like, we cannot fight a war amongst ourselves, right? So in that sense, I think he's kind of making this, like, an analogy to our world where he, he said recently that he considers the White Walkers, um, like, the biggest example he could give or the most clear-cut example from our world he could give for the White Walkers would be climate change. Mm. Okay. And then he went on to say that while us people of all these different countries and within countries and between countries are fighting or, you know, kind of having these battles amongst ourselves over important things and then some not-so-important things, he says we're ignoring the greater threat of our taking care of the planet that we live on. Mm. So, like... You take that piece that he that he said there, and you make it to the White Walkers. So the greater threat is the White Walkers. Yet everybody's fighting amongst themselves, and they're blind to the real threat and the real danger that's happening on the on the kind of like on the periphery of the story. Periphery, yes. So the way that I see that is like Aegon looked at Seven Kingdoms and saw that it was a place where people were always fighting amongst themselves. Neighbors were not, they didn't even really know each other. There were no roads. There was no connections. There were no like trade between the kingdoms and kind of there was no order. And what Aegon wanted to do was replace kind of chaos, if you will, with order in return for all he really wanted in return was to keep the king's peace. Yes, he had a dragon. Yes, he used it. And yes, George says dragons can be used for to destroy and destruct and be, you know, the most fearsome weapon of mass destruction of mankind's ever known. But the way that I see that is kind of like, imagine if a dragon fell into the hands of hair in the black. You know, like kind of like it's a it's a powerful weapon. Like what would he use it for? Mm. Yes. And even on the field of fire, he did kill some men there, but he could have annihilated all of them and he didn't. So I think he used it strategically. And I think kind of going back to his little comic book, you know, era with great power comes great responsibility. And Aegon had the power to unite the seven kingdoms where he read or knew about the scroll that Septon Barth found later about the doom of man coming from the north. Because you have to remember, Westeros extends way farther north mm -hmm. yeah. than Essos. So a long night is a, of greater threat to the lands of Westeros. George has also said that too. So that's kind of the way that I see it. Um, I, The guy with the dragons, and they call him the Conqueror, all that has a negative connotation to it. But I think you need to take a step back and like look at what he gained from his conquest personally not much yeah, he didn't really take much like his quote-unquote like royal seat was like made of wood mm. and like he didn't take anything he only built a castle because later he when he was almost going to die he realized that his heirs can't rule from a pile of mud and sticks like that's not a royal seat which is the only reason he decided to have it torn down and, and build something that would actually be worthy of a king living there. Like, we don't hear about Aegon's uh, excesses or anything like that, you know? No, no. No, he wore, like, simple garb. Like, he... I don't know. Like, everything about the dude just makes you seem like he had a higher purpose in mind other than just, like, being driven by power and greed. Like, he didn't really appear. Like, yes, I mean, I'm sure that there were taxes or whatever that everyone paid to him so he he did profit i was like but it didn't seem to be his objective 
So, so a couple, a few things do make me think that Aegon was interested in prophecy, and that's the fact that he didn't, um, he didn't marry any more women. Like he insisted on on just having Visenya and Rhaenys, um, even though he was offered many more wives, and that probably would have helped him politically, but um, he felt it necessary to only have two wives. Um, not you know having one would have been politically good having m many would be politically good having two was actually kind of a problem you know mm -hmm. um having many wives you can have many alliances having one wife you're in line with the faith of the seven um having two wives is kind of the worst of both worlds i mean the the nice thing about it is that you consolidate dragons but but uh the you know you're married to the only other two people that can ride dragons in the world but it does seem like um, he's focused on having there be three, you know, almost like, you know, the dragon mm -hmm. has three heads. And so I do wonder if there if, if he was trying to fulfill prophecy there. But yeah, that is true. But there were already three. I was like, uh, wouldn't more be beneficial? I, I, don't, I have a hard time understanding. I was like, I understand like the dragon has three heads prophecy that we're dealing with in the current story. Yeah. I was like, but people have been commenting to us because what we what we were just talking about is actually a video that we made, I don't know, like six or seven months ago. And a couple of people have been talking to us about adding the three heads of the dragon to it. And I was like, but what does that actually mean? I was like, there was no great thing that needed to be accomplished in his age, which seems to be tied to the three heads of the dragon prophecy. I was like, he accomplished something great. Apparently, maybe, you know, stopping Hair in the Black. Somehow, Hair in the Black seems to represent coming, you know, the, the coming of the Long Night or something. I think he looked at all the, the people that he could have dealt with. He had the guys in the north. He had Dorne. He had um, the Durandans, the Lannisters, the Gardeners. And he goes, I'm, I need to show Westeros that fighting dragons is no joke. And who better to do that to than Hair in the Black? who was, like, hated by every single person that he governed. He overtaxed them. He took their small folk and basically made them slave labor to build this thing, and thousands of people died. He... So he, he could flex his muscles and have the least amount of damage, if you will, to, like, his, um, you know, kind of, like, gaining some momentum and some positivity about his rule. Like, you know, like, if you kill the greatest guy that ever lived, like, people are going to be upset and they'll tear their rents or garments, like George likes to say. You know, like, yeah. but if you kill a guy like Hair in the Black, like, secretly all the small folk and everybody's like, yay, you know, kind of. Like, not that it's, I'm not condoning it, I'm not saying, like, whatever. But I think that's why he chose Hair in the Black. But I do think that you are onto something with a connection between the Ironborn and the Others. I don't know what it is, but I do think that that's, it has like a double meaning, which is also what George loves doing. Like some, like one sentence will have like four meanings and one action taken by a character will have many meanings. And I think that you're right in that sense. So I think it was like kind of both, if that makes sense. And we should also remember that um, Rhaegar wanted to name his children Aegon, Rhaenys, and Visenya. Um, so he somehow looked back to those three as the model for three heads of the dragon as well though so i mean i guess there's there's that link i don't know did he though because he he didn't he certainly didn't go in order 
if that was the case because he he named his first kid Rainies. Right. So he he went Rainies first, Aegon second, um, and then in a clash of kings, Jorah mentions that there was no Visenya. Um, you know, as if it was it went without uh, saying that the third child would have been Visenya. I see. Okay, I know I know exactly which part yeah. you're talking about. Uh, That's right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it might be that Jorah is is jumping jumping to conclusions, but um, you know, the Speaking of Jorah, what happened to him when he walked into that tent? Oh. Oh. Um Right? Like the other day I was reading it, I'm like, Jorah went in there. You were no one was supposed to go in that tent when Mary Mazdor started doing whatever she did with those shadows. Yeah, it's just never really brought up. I wonder if do you think there'll be an implication of that later? Well, yeah, I I do. I mean, there there's I think it's curious that Danny has Danny has told that she miscarried and that her child had a bunch of um you know, had wings and things like that, but but she never saw the body. No. You know. And like and like, did something happen to Jorah? Because Mary Mazdor made a huge show of you. Nobody must enter this tent. Yet Jorah and Danny go into the tent. So I don't think that George, being as detail oriented as he is, is gonna is not going to address that later. I think it's gonna something yeah. happened to Jorah. I think. Yeah, I think that what Mary what Mary Mazdor was doing, um, I think will eventually come to light. Yeah, um, I do too. I don't think that we've like heard the last of that. I mean, especially I would certainly like to know about it, anyways. Yeah, I mean, her connection to Marwyn was also like established way early. The fact that Marwyn mm-hmm. shows up at the end of book four and he's mentioned by Miri Mazdor in, in book one, like, is no, you know, yeah. it's definitely, definitely something that he's been planning for a long time. Yeah, um, that's so, cool. And we know that he does plan because. He said that he thought of the death scene for Tywin, like, 20 years before he wrote it. <laughs> um, like, he thought of that, Tywin, and in the end, Tywin Lannister did not, in fact, shit gold. That line, he was waiting for, to use it. He, he waited for, like, a decade, or however long it was, to use that line, because he thought yeah, of it and then, way back in the day. And then he then he ruins it, and, and keeps and then keeps mentioning it in a, in a Dance with Dragons over and over. <laughs> Like, you know why? Because he just loved that. He was line. so excited. Right. He was so excited that he got to it's use like it. It's like you got the laugh. You got the laugh once. Like leave it. You know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is mentioned quite a bit because it becomes a whole thing. Like because he stinks and blah blah yeah. and whatever. Yeah, him and his his constipation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah. So I don't know. I I think that I think that. The Maesters and the Citadel, you know, label Aegon as an enigma. And I think in a lot of ways he was. I think the, the name Conqueror has a negative connotation to it. And I think that, I guess, who called him that? The Faith? So they call him the Conqueror, which does have, like, a far less, like... I don't even know. He's not. He's not. Egg on the liberator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like because right. When right. When you got there, and you would think, like this is one of the things that we noticed right away when you got when he got there and they landed in what is now King's Landing, and like his sisters crowned him the king or whatever. The people who cheered the loudest were the small folk who were mm-hmm. clearly not happy with life under the rule of what was ostensibly the faith. 
before that. Right, I right. They were clearly not satisfied with the way things were going. Like, you would think when you see three dragons coming to conquer everything, you're like, oh, no. Though I do wonder about, I mean, history is written by the victors, or it's, you know, it's written by the maesters. Um, <laughs> the, and, you know, they, they say that Heron the Black was super, super unpopular, and yet, after he's gone, you have a, you have a um, Heron the Red come about and have support. So clearly he wasn't so unpopular that that there wasn't somebody else coming along saying, hey, I'm actually, you know, descendant from Heron. Follow me. And everyone kind of says, oh, okay, you know. So he- Yeah, you know what it says, though? The faith mobilized those five rebellions to take place simultaneously. So it was like the Iron Islands, the um, Dornish, or the Vulture King, mm. uh the guy in the veil who threw little Ronald Aaron out the door. Jo- Jono- Jonas. <laughs> Jonas the Kinslayer. Yeah. And uh, and Heron the Red. So there was Lotos, son of the drowned god. Yeah. He got dealt with in about like one minute. Lo- Lotos too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he died like five yeah, seconds Greyjoy later. Yeah, like, yo, I'm going to cut off your head, goodbye. Um, And then obviously you had the Vulture King and you had Heron the Red in the Riverlands and Jonas Aaron in the veil. So, like, it says, and I don't know if it's on the app or where it is, but it says the, these efforts were mobilized by the faith, and they can do these, like, grassroots, like, ground force movements where they can, because um, they, they wield such power and influence over the minds and hearts of the people of Westeros mm-hmm. that they can they can kind of do this rabble-rousing. Jenna Lannister is the one who said it. Jenna Lannister, yeah. So... I think that yes, they you know in their official histories, Heron the Red was a pos or Heron the Black was a pos, blah blah. But at the same time, they they nudged these rebellions in to take place, kind of like because they wanted to immediately remove the Targaryens from from power. And you see that like right after Aegon the Conqueror died, these rebellions popped up like five minutes later. I mean, it's funny that the faith so quickly welcomes Aegon in and then the minute he's done dealing with Heron the Black and his sons take over they're like okay now let's get rid of the Targaryens like immediately immediately after Aegon they're like all right let's get rid of them let's get rid of these Targaryens I I think that I think that Aegon was so formidable that they knew they really could not like you know he he had everything that one could have he was like ruthless but he was fair he was like he was like every, you know, oxymoron of every type of like, you know what I mean? He could be mean, but he was nice. He, he was, was charming, almost but like he was a fierce. Perfect ruler for a medieval world. He was fair, just, but tough as nails. But supposedly, yeah. the, supposedly the high towers were checking, you know, prophecies and looking for visions to see if like Aegon would be should be well, should be accepted. It says that the the high septon put put himself in the um in the starry sept for seven days and seven nights with no nourishment but bread and water and he and the gra- and the crone vouchsafed a vision of for him that said Balerion will burn us to the ground and I'm like okay that you didn't need a vision for that all you need to know is what happened at Harrenhal. <laughs> but I right, but like, I do I do suspect that that they they knew that the high towers were in with Aegon before his conquest. Because um, the High Towers did not send any forces with the gardeners. Um, yeah. And so that's true. I kind of think that uh, from the beginning, because Aegon was doing diplomacy beforehand and he visited Old Town. So 
I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think they were welcoming him in. Like, I think they wanted him to get rid of Heron the Black and come in. And then and then immediately afterwards, they, they changed their minds and they wanted to get rid of him. Um, and this gets into, you know, quite quickly that we get into we get into faith maester conspiracy about getting rid of dragons which is um you know it's it's amazing how fast it was that it was just the minute aegon's gone like okay let's get rid let's get rid of anis yeah and anis was um a very nice guy um but the way george describes him he was more of a benefactor than an heir as in, as in an heir would have been continuing the work his father started, whereas a benefactor, he kind of used his position as king to pursue his interests, better himself, you know, I'm interested in songs and poetry, so I can afford all these, you know, things to... Singers and poets in my yeah, court. Yeah, and-, um, and he, but he was still a nice guy, but he was indecisive. And he was a guy that wanted to please people quite a bit, and so he, that was a detriment to him. Um, and the faith kind of knew that. And even before Aegon died, they were starting these whispers about how Aenys isn't really like his father. I wonder if it's even really his because he's not as fierce as Aegon and he wants to please. He trusts everybody. And it all proved true when all those rebellions broke out. He was frozen and couldn't do anything. And if it weren't for his lords and, and Visenya just kind of mobilizing their own efforts and he, his brother, and his brother yeah. Magor then I don't know what would have happened to Aenys. He probably would have died. I mean, they tried to kill him, and they scaled the warrior's son, scaled the walls in the Red Keep. It's actually pretty simple what would have happened. If those people didn't do anything, there would be no more Targaryens. Right, that's true. Uh, but it sounds like Aenys, um, I mean, it seems like Aenys was poisoned. I mean... Yes, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Aenys was definitely, what is it called, widow's blood? The one where yeah. you, you die of a bad belly? Um I was like, a lot of people that were in the faith's way, we've noticed from doing some research, die of bad bellies. <laughs> we feel like the faith, when they first took over, when the seven first took over mm. the reach, magically, the lord of the the lord of Hightower, whose wife died giving birth to their child, well, widow- died of a bad belly, and then all of a sudden the faith took over House Hightower. Now, wi- yeah. widow, Widow's Blood's the one that gives you constipation. That's the one that, that, that Tywin likely had. Could you, could um, Widow's Blood make somebody's stomach, quote, rupture or burst? Um, it's hard to say. All we know is it, it's, it, it's that it shuts down a man's bladder and bowels until he drowns in his own poisons. So, okay. Because so, I'm just wondering, because like I was reading Fire and Blood and Balon. Have you gotten to that part about Balon, the Spring Prince, Balon the Brave? Um, uh, no, well... I've read through things. It's briefly. Jaharis's son. Oh, okay, okay. Um, he just suddenly died, like, and he I just was like wondering. One day died, and because and his he was awesome. Burst, and he yeah. was like a perfect heir. Huh. And and then magically he was gone. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to say. I mean, all all I know is so widow's blood is is this gets into the um, Oberyn poisoning Tywin theory, um, where. Uh, during during uh, the trial, Pycelle is listing his poisons, and he's like, "Oh, you know, I've got toadstool, nightshade, sweet sleep, demon's dance, blind eye, and then this is widow's blood." And then he goes into a long description of it. It's you know, it's called for the color. Mm-hmm. It's a cruel potion. It shuts down a man's bladder and bowel until he drowns in his own poison. And then he goes back into wolf's pain, basilisk venom, yes, tears yes, of yes. lice. <laughs> 
okay. Yeah, that's so <laughs> widow's blood. We should pay attention to one 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 poison is not like the others, and and yeah, clearly <laughs> clearly Tywin was poisoned. He had constipation, and then you know, but it's amazing how many. You know, it's so it's so interesting. Like in that scene, there's isn't there an author's annotation uh, on Tywin's body? Yes. Um, Do you have the annotated iBooks? No, no. Oh, you should get them. You really need to get them. They're because like a gold mine. It's like a every chapter there'll be these little like um, crown things and you click on them and there's clues in there. It, there's like notes from George that explain things. Huh. Yeah. You like, gotta get it. I was like but, one of them, uh, the one on that scene, or it's, I think it's on Tywin's funeral scene, explains why he rotted. Huh. It's like one, it, and it's it's like a scientific the wit, the placement of the coral and Cersei ordering them to pull it out leaked microbes from his bowels into his <laughs> it's body. It's like a scientific thing. It's and, like and a caused weird... him to start like literally decaying like instantly. Even though the Silent Sisters and the Macers did everything, and they were like Cersei was like trying to yell at Pycelle and blame Pycelle for it, when the reality was is that it was her fault that it was happening. His coral. Which, uh, the quarrel. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna whatever, find the, it. It's the says, crossbow. Um, the oh, the quarrel. Oh, the quarrel. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like, sorry. It's a, it punctured his intestines and leaked bacteria into his body and caused him to like fall apart. Like cause he was like literally turning into a, a gross, terrible smelling puddle. Uh huh. And and we were like fascinated with because I I took science so long ago that I don't remember all of it. I was like, that's one of the things that I thought was so impressive about your genetics of dragons thing. I was like, God, I was like, I don't remember doing, I remember doing genetics years and years and years ago, but like I would have never been able to pull my full Mendelian genetics out of my brain again from wherever it was stored from years ago. Well, it, it, I mean, it's a funny thing about like the science because George R. R. Martin is a sci-fi guy and he's not a hard, he's, he's not a hard science person. But he definitely has a background in things. And so you've got to, like, when you judge sort of what he puts in the story, you kind of go, okay, well, what, what, what is he aware of and how deep does he go? And, how, you know, like, and mm-hmm. I definitely think he knows, like, base, you know, basic Mendelian genetics. He wrote story after story on genetic engineering um, and things like that. And, and he actually has other stories of the wild cards that, talks about recessive genes and things like that and x chromosomes and y chromosomes so i know i know he knows all about that but then there's some other things that i always wondered about like so i i have i have this kind of like nebulous working theory about the others and why obsidian kills them and okay it's but it's it's kind of so obsidian is mostly silicon and silicon is a semiconductor which means that its conductivity changes based on temperature and so i think and i might have it backwards but at perfect at absolute zero silicon becomes a perfect i forget if it becomes a perfect resistor or a perfect conductor and and therefore something is happening with like resisting uh, like electrical currents uh, within, like if you were to stab a White Walker with it, it's 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 causing something with the uh, the electrical currents. The thing is, is like I don't have the science background to make to like yeah. 
you know, to quite... I totally know what you mean. Yeah, we have attempted to go into a couple of scientific I do things stuff. like this all the time, like you just did. Yeah. And I know that, like, I, not know, I feel like this is right. And I think George does do what, what you just kind of did. Like, he uses scientific things, you know, from the world and he applies it. And I think that, like, in that way, he makes, grounds the fantasy or magic or whatever you want to call it in some sort of actual reality, like, that could happen or, like, he uses elements in that way. Yeah. So I think, like, whatever you're onto, because I have looked at, at Silicon before and I've looked at some other things, um, and I get, like, as far as you get, and then I'm like, I'm not a scientist and I can't do this. Right, and then George isn't either, so you don't know how far he gets, you know? like right. Like, there's these little things, like the kiss of life. Like, people were telling me that, like, okay, the most important thing about mouth-to-mouth resuscitation is actually, like, the pumping on the chest, not the actual blowing of air into the mouth. But clearly, George R. R. Martin, like, he didn't know this, and so... Yeah. <laughs> You know, he's having them blow air into into people's mouths like you see on TV, <laughs> thinking that's the most right, important part. Right. And that's what's making people like wake up, even though like scientifically we kind of know that it's actually like the, the moving of the chest up and down. In fact, now they say when you do CPR to not do mouth to mouth anymore because it's irrelevant. Um, yeah, I heard that. I think you told me that. Yeah. But George R. Martin um, doesn't know that. So it's like, and, no. and a lot of times it's like, well, also what he wrote at the time. So it's like, what was the science at the time? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. right. in 1996. That was something that I was thinking about with the others. I was like, because back in the day, the burning of fossil fuels was thought to be more likely to bring on an ice age. The, before it became global warming in the 90s, when he first came up with this idea, it was thought that it was going to bring on an ice age. Right, definitely back I was when, like, he, yeah, when, he was a, when he was a hippie back in the day, yeah. yeah. I was like, I think that was like the, the thought process in the 80s and into the early 90s before um, um, the greenhouse effect and all that stuff became where, like at the foremost part of climate research, I was like, that was, it was like thought that it would have the opposite effect that um, scientists have concluded today that it would have. Yeah, so regarding, regarding that, and this is getting back to something you guys were talking about earlier, the, um, I'm somewhat torn about the fundamental nature of the others. Like, on the one hand, it could be a simple like parable where the children of the forest are nature, and we vanquish nature, and the result of vanquishing nature is you know the others and climate change and we're a bunch of idiots not knowing what's going on and climate change is going to destroy us unless unless we do something you know mm-hmm. and that that would be a very that would be a very like simple tale um that would make mm-hmm. sense and it, but it would also be up his alley like he cares about environmental issues and you know george r martin's right. a big hippie yep and then but then on the other hand it's like well Every other story he's ever written is about people cleverly tricking people into attacking each other. Um, like, you know, uh, if you watch my videos, I, I have something called the Kim Dissey philosophy, which comes from uh, a, a, store, a book of his called Dying of the Light, where the Kim Dissey philosophy is always to try to get your, your enemy. Your enemy has an enemy and you try to get your enemies to kill themselves. And one way to do that in, in a lot of these different tales that he wrote is to send um, false dreams to people. And so all of a sudden it's like all of these false dreams and false visions that people are getting, maybe it's the children of the forest, 
like trying to get us all to kill to kill ourselves so they can retake over the world. And so, you know, it's like, and, and I think I think that's right. I think he does do that because have you ever heard the story of the Casterleys? Yes. So they it said land the clever or whatever. I don't know. I don't know what he was, but he would whisper in their ears at night and send them dreams. And he turned the Casterleys against each other. Ah, yes, exactly. Exactly what you just said. And that's just he has he's got a dozen different stories about this, about visions. Unlike in most stories where like visions help people, like uh, whether it be, yeah. you know, angel or whatever, where like, oh, we have to listen to prophecy because prophecy is going to lead us the right way. Most of the time in his stories, prophecy is a trick and it's 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 meant to maliciously cause us to do bad things. An, an Iago kind of situation with Othello rather than, you know, something something that's helpful. And so, yes, you know, and so when I when I taking this all the way back to Aegon, it's like I do wonder if like is Aegon coming in to save the world from from the White Walkers and is he a hero or is he part of the problem? Was he like tricked? Was he sent a vision? Was he sent a, fa a false prophecy because they want those dragons to come in and destroy the wall? And then the White Walkers will take over, and the others will take over. Like maybe the maybe the wall is keeping is keeping everything at bay, and the, and the children of the forest know this, and so they're trying to get Aegon to come in and destroy that wall. Um, I don't right. I don't know, um, and so it's like I don't, I don't know which tale is, is the way to go, or maybe it's both. You know, somehow simultaneously that that you know this nature we have to stop climate change story or this typical George R. R. Martin story of we've got we've got a trickster, a trickster enemy that's trying to make us kill ourselves. Right. It almost feels like it, it would be more most likely that it would be some sort of combination of the two. Yes. I was like, otherwise, it, the complexity of his writing would indicate that it, nothing is going to be just like so straightforward that like a five year old would understand it. Right. It would be something that is like. What was that one thing that he said he likes to do? He he has like these moral questions that are like impossible to answer that right. he wants right. people to wrestle with, like the conundrum that Jamie was in where he threw Bran out the window. You're like, what would you do if the life if the life of your the woman you love and your children was at stake, and the only way that you knew for sure that you could save them was to throw a little boy that you didn't know off of a tower. Like, yeah. What would you actually do if you were in that situation? When it's your children. And George says, most people say, well, I'm not a bad guy. I wouldn't do that. But then I say, well, what about if your children were at stake? He goes, and then they kind of pause for a minute because people do a lot for in the name of their children and protect their kids, you know? So, sure. so he goes, these are just moral questions. He goes, and I don't have an answer for it. It explains Cersei, but Jamie doesn't really care about his kids. So. <laughs> yeah, well, right. <laughs> Well, and Cersei, does Cersei care about her kids because they're her kids or just because they're her kids? Like, because she's a narcissist, you know? Like, she, she, uh, I think narcissist, like, they're, they're a means to her power. They're, 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 they're yeah. her agency. Yes, yes. But also, like, Jamie and Cersei's love for each other is also narcissistic. Like, they only love each other because they look the same. Cersei, definitely. 
Because even Jamie thinks when he sees himself in the water, his reflection after being in the dungeons at River Run, yeah. he's like, wow. He goes, wow, I look way different. He goes, I don't look the way I used to. I don't look like Cersei anymore. She's not going to like that. <laughs> right. But, but it's it's definitely, I think Jamie was supposed to start out, you know, arrogant and, 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 um, and that he's, and narcissistic as well. Yeah. Um, and then he's just, you know, he, he has a growth and development. But yeah, the, that's the whole the symbol of their love. And, and the thing is, is like, there's a, so there's a, there's a, another story called In the House of the Worm, which has a proto Jamie, a character. Mm-hmm. And in the proto Jamie story, he's trying to hit on a girl that looks exactly like him. And he fully admits that like, oh, I probably like this girl because she looks like me, you know? And the, the minute I read that, I was like, I was like, oh, so Jamie and Cersei just like each other because they like themselves. Like, that's why they're... Like, why is he writing that? I'm trying to figure out where he got that the inspiration Well, if, for a character who's attracted to themselves. <laughs> like, you know? Like, that's very... I don't know. I don't know. It's almost bizarre. But George R. R. Martin does, and I've heard him in interviews talk about this as well, He he, he is rather insecure about... Uh, when he was young, like male pretty boys, and he really he really thought that these male pretty boys got got all the girls, and they got to travel the world, and they were they were they were you know rich, and everything was handed to them, and 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 he had to struggle, and you know he was this homely poor kid who had to struggle for everything. Um, yeah, and that's definitely that's definitely his perspective on, on the world, um, you know, as if as if anything's handed to anyone, but the but the but he really thought that you know that there were these you know super douchey uh Jamie Lannisters out there in the world who who got everything they wanted and um so he wrote this story uh in the house of the worm where Annalyn is the main character but Annalyn does have he has the same growth that Jamie does um it's it's kind of an existential uh story about you know exploring um uh you know what a human being is is going to do with them with their lives with and and how they can make a difference and at the end annalyn like you know has an existential crisis and grows the same how jamie has an existential crisis and grows you know he -hmm. writes in the white book at the end that he can do he he can fill the page with whatever he wants you know he's in control of his life now and um he's grown as a character so yeah jamie jamie is is the most similar to the is the one character that's the most similar to George R. R. Martin's writing from the seventies. Cause his writing from the seventies has a lot to do with existentialism and existential crises. And he kind of moves away from that in the eighties and nineties. Um, but J- Jamie is probably the one holdover from that where, where his character has that, um, uh, in it. But, um, but yeah, the whole thing is just yeah. Jamie's in love with himself, which is why he's in love with Cersei, and Cersei's in love with herself, which is why she's in love with Jamie. And the- yes, and I do, I do like that kind of journey that you see Jamie go through, and kind of like exactly like you said that scene where he writes in the white book. It's kind of powerful for him. Yeah, as a character. And in, in fact, it's almost. I would say the first half of of a feast for crows is a little bit of a regression. But um, where he's still trying to be with Cersei, you know. Yes. Yeah, it's one of those. It gets worse before it gets better. Right. He kind of makes this. He he has this growth, and then he regresses, and then he has the growth again. 
Um, and I guess that that that's true. It's probably realistic in realistic. some yeah. shape or form. Yeah, I mean, George loves to seem to make us absolutely hate characters before they end up becoming our favorites. Oh, it's like a it soap opera, like his, right? Like let's make let's make the <laughs> villain like you the hate hero. The hound, he's evil. Let's make the villain the hero I, and the hero the villain. Yeah, yeah, he he definitely is can masterfully do that. Yeah, Cersei, Cersei, I always thought was the weird one um, on on what you're supposed to think of her. So you you start off in a, in a Game of Thrones thinking that Cersei, fully believing that Cersei is the one that that is is uh, killed John Aaron, and she and she and Jamie threw Bran from the tower. Yep. And you fully think that like she that she is just the worst, and then. Over the course of two books, her reputation is repaired a little. Like, no, actually, she had nothing to do with John Aaron's death, and she didn't send the cat's paw. Yeah, she didn't send the cat's paw to to, to kill Bran. Um, and and then you're like, oh, and what would you do if if uh, if somebody's you know uh, if Bran interrupted and your own children were on the line, their lives were on the line because if it came out that they were bastards, like their lives are yeah. over. And, you know, so you get this Cersei's, like, reputation is, is getting repaired. And even reading A Clash of Kings, like, you sense that Tyrion is, is paranoid about Cersei. Like, is, he thinks Cersei is sending all of these people to kill him, but she's not. And so Cer- yeah, you're right. Cersei's not. reputation is repaired a little. And then A Feast for Crows happens and you're like, fuck, she's the worst human being ever. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're like now we're in her head, and there's no oh denying god. how terrible she actually is. Oh yeah. god, yeah. There's stuff like like going back to a Game of Thrones and finding out that Cersei wanted Arya executed after <laughs> after the incident with Joffrey at the Trident. Yeah, and you're like, what? That's yeah. That's really what planet. Are you on? Like? Yeah, she was really into killing kids the whole time. <laughs> Yes, yes. And then she kills, like, the Septon, right? Right, and then you it, find out she, she shoved her childhood friend into a well, and and right. they're, they're killing all of those innocent dwarves, and, and she doesn't care. And then the, the, the torture of the blue of the blue bard, and yes. oh, a lot of horrible stuff, yeah. Yeah, she she's um one that, like, you know, because I can find myself being sympathetic with characters like Theon and... You know, like there's some redemption for those characters in in my eyes. Like with Cersei, I'm just like, you are so deranged yeah. and just oh, and the worst. I don't the, know if there's redemption. The handing over of of Felice Stokeworth to to Kyber, oh. that's probably the worst crime that she ever. That did. was terrible. I forgot she did that. Yeah. I actually forgot that she did that too. Oh my god! Yeah, because in the sh- in the book, she stands on trial for like wh- like a lot more things than just like doing the the thing with Loras Tyrell and Marjorie in the show, which doesn't even happen in the books. But she kills the Septon. Yeah. Like, she's on trial for killing the Septon, right? Yeah. Or was she, it a Septon? Yeah. Like, she does a bunch of things. Like she, She's on trial for, like, 89 different crimes. Counts. Because, yeah. Because, yeah, I think like, in the book, she's on, cro- she's on trial for regicide, deicide, incest. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, a whole bunch. Like, in the show, she's yeah, only on... incest is just, like, one of them. Yeah. Sending somebody to bear false witness because she sent one of the Kettle Blacks to say that he slept with Marjorie. I think in the show, they just have her for incest with Lancel. I'm trying to... Yes. I think that's it. 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> and it's like, that's your cousin. That's hardly incest in, in, in medieval right? sense. Right, like her <laughs> father was married to his cousin. Right, like... like It's just... Her mother was his her father's cousin. Right. Like, I was like, it's gross, but like... And... Uh... And they had the, um, that Marjorie was taken in because she knew that her brother was a homosexual. Yeah, that anti-gay Are trial thing. Are you kidding me? And like, what they did with Laura's They just should have told the off. story as it's written. They maybe could have removed some well, they, of it, but they didn't need to create that. They were trying to write off uh, Loris as quick as possible so he could go be in, be in the Iron Fist. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, they did a great job of completely destroying him. <laughs> I was like, I was like, if I was George, like that's the one character that I thought that they did. Like, I was like, yes, I was like, they made his sexuality like his most prominent feature, as opposed to like his character, which it was like. Unless you were really paying attention when you read the books, you might not have even caught the fact, right? That Lawrence there, there's only like there's only like three good. or four lines, you know, in it. Yes. Um. But I was like, he but was it's like, not the most defining thing about him at all. The most defining no, he thing was just like a badass knight, right? That the most defining thing about Loris, I mean, for me, it's like, well, is his eagerness to go, uh, to go on the hunt for the mountain, and you think eager, and then there's his whole um, trick, his whole trickery to win, or his, I guess he didn't win the hands turning yes. in the end, but his trickery to win the hands turning, like, and you have those two things together. As like these, as like oh he's so he's so eager for for nobility, but at the same time he does have a little like dark edge to him, and then he does, and Jamie picks up on that too. And then later on, you find out that like you know he's he's this great knight, but then he he slay he gets so angry with Renly's death that he just randomly kills like some of his his kings. Yeah, all members. of those guys, yeah. Robar Royce. Yeah, yeah, and Kui. Uh, what? I was so upset because I'm rereading the books again, and I forgot that that he did that. Well, he it's just so, like so he was not so angry that he felt like they had to be in on it, so he just. I don't it. care, but even you know, Jamie note makes note. He goes, he has, um, he he reminds Jamie of himself in ways, you know, like the the hot temper, the quick to act, the impulsiveness, the arrogance. Yeah. and he's deadly. You know, he's a great swordsman or whatever. He's a great knight whatever you want to say but he's definitely a very skilled lancer and he and he's somebody who like he he read the art of war you know like he knows his opponent he knows the type of horse that the mountain likes to ride so he rode himself so himself he's like you know what i'm gonna find a mare in heat and i'm going to ride that and the mountain's not even going to be able to control his horse. But it's also going. like he, that's an action without thinking because the mountain was going to kill him. One thing I and one thing I really hope he, they get to, I hope George gets to later on is what what Loris was scheming to do in a Game of Thrones. Because before before like any of this, like while everybody else was scheming, he was trying to get Robert married to Marjorie. Um and he, yes. and he was showing he was showing <clears throat> um Renly like a like a like a painting a, a locket which had a painting of Marjorie inside and then Renly went to Ned and was like, "Hey, does this look like Liana?" And Ned's like, "No, she doesn't look anything like <laughs> Liana." <laughs> and he's like, "Oh." Yeah. And, he was, and, and Ned thought it was like creepy. He was so weirded out. Right, but in the end, it was like Renly was just 
testing the waters because he was trying to get Marjorie to come to town because he wanted Robert to set Cersei aside. But setting Cersei aside means Loras must have knew about the incest. Like he must have known that there was potential to set Cersei aside. So Loras was this schemer in the first book. Four books later, like that, that that hasn't been mentioned again. Like what what Loras? He's just a meathead now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I I hope it comes back. I hope it's resolved. It probably won't be because there's too many plot lines to resolve. But I was always like, huh? Like Loras, Loras was a schemer, and he knew about the incest from the beginning. What was he doing? Like how? Oh. I. I, don't know. I always wonder, this is like a huge mystery that we've talked about like a thousand times. Like, where, where was Stannis and what was he doing for the first book? Uh, well, the minute... Like, he allegedly knew the truth, left, never did anything about it. Oh, right, for that year? What was he doing? Well, we know... Yeah, because he was gone for a whole year. Yeah, the minute, the minute Robert got into his carriage to go north um, to meet Ned... Stannis got on a ship and fled to Dragonstone. And yeah, for a year, he's just chilling. I was like, Stannis is not a guy who runs. I was like, so what was he doing? He had to have had a plan of some sort. We've tried to formulate a theory around it like a thousand times, except there's no information, so you can't do anything. I mean, I guess he understood that he if he stayed in King's Landing, he'd be killed. But, um, but it's odd, you know? Like, it... it there's a lot of things about Stannis's early story that doesn't make sense because, so, Melisandre like is totally convinced that Stannis is the guy to follow, but she was only sent over because Selyse had converted to the religion of the Red God, but, but like, Stannis isn't even in the air at this point. He's not even like king. He's like down the list of of. You know, like at the, at, at the time, unless Melisandre somehow knew about the incest too, or Selyse <laughs> did, like there's no reason for Selyse, like it was just a remarkable coincidence that Selyse like converts to the religion of the Red God and Melisandre like thinks Stannis is the one and figures out that like he's going to be like heir because Joffrey, Tommen and, and, and Marcella are bastards. Like, like there's way too much information for her to have known all of this. And yet... For some reason, Melisandre like ends up on Dragonstone uh, <laughs> in yeah, Selyse's company. Yeah, no, it company. is bizarre. It's something that I've thought about like quite a bit. Yeah. And so I looked and I scoured the web to find out if like George has said anything about Melisandre. Like it took me like a week. And um, he, this is his only indicator about Mel. Um, the person asked like, was she sent by the Red Priesthood? Or did she go there on her own? And he goes, Melisandre was not sent by the Red Priesthood and she has her own agenda. And I was like, come on. I was like, what? It's like, why? You just made it like 50,000 times harder yeah. to figure this so, out. She wasn't sent by, by the Red right. Priest. Right. So, so why is she, like, then who converted Selyse? You know, and like. She did once she got there. I don't so know. So she arrived there first, <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> But 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 it's like Selyse must have Selyse must have converted to the religion of the Red God when she was in King's Landing, though. I don't know. I don't know. It, I know it's very it's, confusing. It's, it's. I mean, we we have some crazy theories about how Mel ended up there, but I don't really. It's feel like, like yeah, there's it's so and it's been so long, so weird. Weirdly, the story of Selyse and everything about Selyse oddly comes from Littlefinger, 
which is one of the one of the oddest things. Like, why is Littlefinger keeping his keeping tabs on Solis? Very but, good point. But um, let's see here. Let me let me try to find. Varys told us some years past that Lady Solis had taken up with a red priest. Littlefinger reminded them. So somehow Solis met a red priest when they were living in King's. No, actually, no. Solis was in was on Dragonstone. I'm sorry. Solis was living on Dragonstone. Stannis was living in King's Landing, apart. So for some reason, a red priest made it to Dragonstone years ago. You know, so uh, who knows why? If and if Melisandre has her own agenda, then I don't know why. Like, does that does that red priest come back and go, "Oh man, there's this woman, Solis, and she's married to yeah. this guy, Stannis. He's fourth in line for the throne, <laughs> but <laughs> but he, he he grinds his teeth, and I think he might be the chosen one." <laughs> she says, "She yeah yeah yeah." She goes. I came to the place of salt and smoke. I'm like, that is really what you're basing that on? <laughs> like, like you're burning people alive and doing born all this among, crazy cause stuff? Because the Azor High shall be reborn amidst salt and smoke, and you came to Dragonstone, and you're claiming this is the only place on planet whatever that is the place of salt and smoke. You know what I mean? Like, she actually says that, and I was like, that's flimsy. But I guess these are, like, zealots. So Right, I don't yeah. Know. So they'll just, like, you know, they'll hang their hat on something like, I'm at the place of salt. That's the thing that's, like, kind of creepy about religious fanatics. Oh, yeah. Is, like, the smallest little thing, and they're like, yep, this is what it is. This is the sign. This is the sign, and and it doesn't matter because it just confirms their own belief system. What's that that new cult that... on the internet that worships Donald Trump and thinks there's, like, a global global cabal of, of lizard people? Um, you've heard about that? I'll be honest, and I'll tell you, I have no idea, uh, a- but I hope Anon, I never Anon or something? Q-Anon, that's it, Q-Anon. Yeah, they're these nutso, nutso religious These, these people actually exist, and they think this? Yeah, they think that there's a big global conspiracy, uh, and that, and, um, and that somehow the only person not in, in on the global conspiracy is is trump and that there and that there's this one guy in the in the uh u.s military with a super high clearance who keeps giving out cryptic clues about what's going on you know because he has access to everything and he goes to the dark web and he posts like or he goes to to 4chan and he posts like a cryptic like like mystery on what's actually going on you know like, uh, and then people have to figure it out yeah, whole whole like cult of people. Q add-on. But 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 interestingly enough though, Dragonstone, if we're talking bringing this full circle, if we're talking about religious zealotry and prophecy and things like that, Dragonstone is where the Targaryen family flees flees to. So, maybe they read the salt and smoke thing too and were like, "Yep, got to got to go. Got to go to Dragonstone." Or maybe they just thought this is the only place that is controlled by Valyria that I can go that it will not be affected. I mean, there was there was uh, the island that the Valarians were on and the islands that the Celticars were yeah. on. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've been trying to figure this out. Do you have any idea how long the Valerians had been there? Uh, no idea. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's no just, idea either. yeah, it's, I, I've done a lot of research on the Valarians and trying to figure out who they are and who they supported at various times and things like that. And, uh, they, they are a big basket of contradiction. Um, uh-huh. I was like, cause like their legend seems to go back as far as like the gray king possibly with like the driftwood throne and like weird stuff and you're like i don't know how old you your family is yeah i cannot figure it out and and george r martin he's he's been kind of um tight-lipped on their activities at various times like we don't know who they supported during the blackfire rebellion um Mm. and, and things like that we don't you know they they weren't dragon lords, but for some reason they were they're they're highly linked with the Targaryens. You know, like did they you know they fled? At, I I assume they fled at the same time to take those islands. You know, so it's it's they were there before. I do know that. But then there's like, and like why were they always favored over the Celtigars? Like I can't find an example of Targaryens. But it says they weren't dragon the- riders. Right in the line of succession, definitely never married a Celtigar, and you're like, so why were the Valerians more important? It's like I can't figure out what their deal is. Yeah, I can't either. Yeah, it's like they're like the sea dragons or something to the Targaryens air dragons or something. I can't Maybe. figure it out. Yeah, never, never really could figure it out. It's like I hate how he gives us these like cool little nuggets of information in like one sentence, and then those of us who are like us and you who right, and this this look is, at every single sentence gets stuck on these. And what's things. sad about what's sad about Fire and Blood is that we're never going to get any more detail. Like this is it. Like he's gonna, that's true. It's not, he's not going to write another book over this time period. Like, no, no, no. Like like I was I was bitching with Carmine about about how. He has this line, and he says it in the damn video too, about how the Targaryens for a hundred years looked east to east to to Essos, like at, in the century after the Doom. And I was like, how did they look east? They weren't doing anything in Essos. Like they were not part of any wars until Aegon comes about. Uh, but doesn't it doesn't make yes. any sense? But we're never gonna get any more information on that. Oh well. Nope. Oh. No, well. so we. Oh well. I was like, so they were just like sitting there and watching Essos crumble into absolute mayhem. Right. We actually said that in nothing. our in our video. They're like, uh, they they kept a distant eye on the happenings of their former. <laughs> right. Right. That's. I think that's what we phrase those. Like they took a very so distant not, interest. I guess. It's like that. Yeah. We, very distant. We we've we've got dragons. We could conquer. We could conquer everything. We could reconquer. You know, Volantis, the Seven Kingdoms. Well, but no, it's okay. It's going to sit on this island. Uh, well. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, um, do you think that there's anything else you wanted to cover in this? I think, I think we've, been, we've, been just, we've been talking for a good 90 minutes here. So yeah, let's wrap it up. Thank you, Dave and Mary Ellen from Order of the Green Hand for uh, taking the time out and chewing the fat. I will be back with Carmine next week to continue our discussion of Fire and Blood as we get more into Aegon's reign and the Sons of the Dragon portion of the, uh, of the book. So we will see everyone next time on the Game of Thrones podcast. Thanks for listening.